Well, bless the Lord. <clears throat> um, Reuben has asked me to minister this morning from Mark 2, 23 to 28. And I want to focus possibly on verse 28 as the key verse in this. Am I ready to go? All set. Great. So that's what I want to do. Maybe just read it first, please. Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry? He and those with him. How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And so I want to just draw some parallels today, this morning if I can, between the ancients, those who actually lived in the time of Jesus, and how they responded to His words, and how His words affected them, and compare that with modern man. And we see today how modern man responds to Jesus, and how the Word of God affects modern man. And hopefully as we go along in the teaching, I'll be able to bring some of these points out. But the first thing that I want to point out to with regards the people of Jesus' day, the leadership of the Jewish Sanhedrin and Pharisees, the religious leaders, was that the first thing that they failed to do was that they failed to see the majesty of who they were dealing with. They never grasped the majesty of the Lord Jesus. And they treated Him just, in fact, they treated Him with much disdain. You never find anywhere in the Scriptures where they come to Him and they say, Lord or, or, or King or Rabbi or Teacher. The Pharisees always used to just say to Him, Why this? Why that? What do you say about this? They had no respect for Jesus. They treated Him with disdain and they were most antagonistic towards Him. The only occasions where someone did come to him and use the term rabbi was Nicodemus. And he was a, he was a foreseen, he, he had foresight, he could see that there was something more to Jesus than met the eye, you know. And he came to him and said, Lord, we know you from God because no one can teach or say the things that you've said unless he comes from God. And he was a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the Jewish leadership. The only other times that you find them using the term rabbi or teacher is when they try to catch him out. But they never treated Jesus with respect. They always tried to catch him out. And at the one occasion, they came to him and they said, Teacher, we know that you, have, you don't respect or hold one man above the other, but whose inscription is this on the coin? Who do we serve, Caesar or, or God? And it says, And Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy and knowing that they were trying to catch him out, that's why they used the, name, the word teacher. But normally they just had no respect for they could not grasp the fact of the majesty of who Jesus was. You know, they were always asking for signs. The Jewish leadership always wanted signs from Jesus. I don't know how many more signs he could have given them. He fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. That in itself should have just disturbed the thinking of those boys. He then fed 4,000 with seven fish and a few more loaves. Uh, another Miracle, to say the least. Another sign. He healed blind eyes. He made 
the deaf to hear. In their very presence, he, he did all these signs in their presence, and yet they always wanted more. They always wanted more. Because there's none so blind as them that don't want to see. And in their rejection of him as the Messiah, they could not understand the majesty of who was standing before them. He raised the dead. I mean, that in itself, just, just if, if one person was raised from the dead, would be enough to convince me that there's something happening amongst us here. Yeah, scare me a bit, but certainly let me know that there was something happening. They knew who he was, but they refused to accept him, asking for a sign. And Jesus gave them the best sign ever. He pointed them to the word. He always pointed them back to the word. And what he was saying to them is, search the scriptures and see if they don't speak of me. See if I don't conform to the pattern that the scriptures describe of the Messiah. See if I don't meet, foot the bill, meet the bill. And so he sent them back to the scriptures. And in the book of John, it's about the only time that he actually ex says clearly that he's the son of God. But he used other titles of himself. He used to say, I am. And when he was saying I am, he was referring all the way back to the burning bush where Moses was confronted by Jehovah. And Jehovah said to Moses, God, go and get, deliver my people. And he said to them, what is your name? How can I go and tell Israel that I've been sent by someone who I don't know his name? And God said to Moses, I am that I am. That's who I am. I'm the self-existent one. And Jesus would always point to that when he spoke to him. He said, I am. I am the one that Moses met in the bush, in the wilderness. I am Jehovah Jesus, who spoke to Moses in the bush. But then there's a, another title that Jesus used of himself. And it was called, he used to refer to himself as the son of man. And for that we must go to Daniel. Let's just go and look at Daniel for that. Jesus referred to himself as the son of man and some commentators have, have said that it was a reference to his humanity. He, he identified himself with the human race. That's why he called himself the Son of Man. Um, and, and there's an element of truth in that. But I can tell you that's not what Jesus had in mind when he called himself the Son of Man. What he had in mind was the vision that had been given to Daniel about 600 years prior to the Christ coming. And Daniel had been given visions at night. And he had seen the heavens open, and he had seen the Father God, called the Ancient of Days, sitting on his throne. And on that throne, it, it gives a brief description of what, what God looks like, and it says his hair was white as wool, and his clothes radiant and all that. doesn't mean that he sat there with hair like mine, gray hair, you know, with a bit of a quiff. <laughs> it talks of his purity and of his holiness, and... Um, that's what Daniel saw. But as he saw the ancient of days, God the Father sitting down, it says, and there came one who looked like the Son of Man who came to the Father. And let me read that to you. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. It just describes his purity, you see. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. That's righteousness and truth issuing forth from the Father. Thousands and thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. 
Now that's the picture that Daniel had of the Ancient of Days, God the Father. And he goes on and he says, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And it's to that reference that Jesus always pointed to. When he said, I'm the son of man, he wasn't saying, I'm flesh and blood. Yes, he was. For the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We know that. He said, but there's more to me than meets the eye. I'm not only this flesh and blood. I'm that one that Daniel spoke of 600 years ago. And that's the Christian faith, people. We worship someone who's way beyond just a flesh and blood God. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he says, Though we have known Christ after the flesh, now we know him thus no longer. Because he's now the resurrected one. He's gone back into that glory. And Jesus always referred to himself and equated himself with that transcendent one who was pre-existing. Who had pre-existed before he actually came to the planet in physical form. And he identified, identified himself and linked himself to that transcendent majesty of the being that has been described in Daniel. That's who we serve, guys. Someone who has been, someone who is, and someone who will be. And when Jesus said, <clears throat> you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of glory, he was saying to the Pharisees, I have been, and I will be returning. I will be going back to resume my rightful position in the universe as the Son of Man to whom all dominion has been given. But I will also be returning to this earth to bring about final judgment. To those on my right who have received me, enter into the joy of the Lord. To those on the left, perdition. And he gives each one the opportunity to make the choice. Perdition or enter into the joy of the Lord. The problem with the Pharisees was that their concept, sorry, I'm just going to have some water. <laughs> their concept of who a Messiah should be actually veiled their understanding and kept them closed as to who the real Messiah was. And a veil is something which covers or hides. It covers something so that you can't look into it so that you can't see through into it. It prevents you from seeing. And their concept was that they wanted a Messiah to come to restore Israel to its old political grandeur and glory. They wanted the kingdom restored by a king equivalent to David or Solomon, in which it was, they had ruled over all the nations around them, and they were a powerful country in the early days. And that's what the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, wanted. They wanted a Messiah to come back who would restore the pride of Israel, bring it back into the leadership of nations around them, and who would conquer Rome. And then they would sit as leaders and have many servants and slaves around them. That's what they wanted. They wanted the rest of the nations to be slaves to Israel once again. But Jesus didn't come for an external kingdom. He came in a different manner, and that's why, because they expected him to be this, they couldn't see him as he truly was. He didn't come to conquer Rome. Oh, he has. He has conquered Rome, believe me. And he's conquered the universe. 
But he came for a different purpose. He came to set up an internal spiritual kingdom. And he came to conquer sin and Satan. For this purpose was the Son of Man manifested, the Bible says, to destroy the works of the evil one. And in announcing that his, his forthcoming birth, the angel said to Mary, his name will be Jesus and he will deliver these people from their sins. And that's what the Messiah has come to do, to deliver his people, you and I, and those who hear the message of the gospel, from sin and from Satan. And so, because of their concept of a Messiah and their traditions, they could not see the majesty of the Son of Man who was walking in their midst with them. All right? That was then. Now we look at today. How many modern men, men and women, see the glory of Jesus? It's only those who have repented and turned to Him. Modern man also doesn't need to a savior like this. Modern man doesn't want a savior such as this. He wants, he wants a great political leader, doesn't he? We all want political leaders who can deliver our country and raise the standard of living and bring inflation down and chip away at the oil price. But that's what we want. We don't want the spiritual kingdom because modern man, and man is essentially the same from the early days to now. Man is a natural, carnal human being. And we want the Savior that we are satisfied with in the flesh. We don't want a spiritual one who convicts us of our sin. And so there is a veil over modern man. There is a veil that lies over the heart and mind of modern man that he cannot see the majesty of who Jesus is. And I, I tell you, there's a couple of reasons. There's many reasons why this veil lies over modern man. But one of them is that, the first one that I think is that, Man has put a premium on intellect. Modern man. Modern man thinks he's very clever. And we are. We know a lot of things. We know how to hurt each other very well. We know how to destroy. And, and the weaponry we built up, we are extremely clever. But modern man has put a, a premium on the intellect. And the parallel to that is just like the old guys, they also put a premium on intellect. Paul writing to the Corinthians says that the Jews seek for a sign always. But the Gentiles seek for wisdom. They always want wisdom because the message of the cross is foolishness to them. They can't grasp it. They can't understand it. They seek after wisdom. So modern man is no different to old man. We're all the same. We're essentially the same thing. But we seek after, this, we, we seek after wisdom. And Paul says, We preach Christ and Him crucified. To the Jew, it's, it's foolishness. Uh, but to the Gentile, they certainly can't understand it. It's even more foolish. But he says, but Christ is both the power of God and the wisdom of God displayed to man. And that's the truth of who Jesus is. And modern man has been given an intellect by God. And an intellect is good. It's wonderful. It's a free gift from God. And we're meant to use that intellect to discover him. For God is not afraid of us investigating His creation and, and seeing the intricacy of His creation. It's fantastic. I watch these uh, travel programs, not them, um, what is it? National Geographic. My wife knows it. <laughs> I watch these National Geographic programs and, they, and they, they focus on spiders and all kinds of things and animals. And, 
And I'm stunned. I sit there after a while just saying, Lord, I can't believe the intricacy of these little things. And that's what the intellect was supposed to do. God delights in his people investigating him in, in, and seeing and then using that and saying, glory, we hand it back to you and say, wonderful, Father, what? What a kingdom, what a king you are. But modern man in his perversion, and the heart is so perverse. He takes that intellect, which is meant to discover God, and he does his utmost to disprove the existence of God. We take this wonderful gift that God has given us, and we try our very, very utmost to disprove the existence of a loving Father and a loving God. And you know, we're so silly. Jeremiah is speaking of the heart of man. And when the Bible talks of the heart of man, it talks of the, the whole being, the mind, the intellect, the will, the emotions, the whole of man. He says, do you not know that the heart of man is deceitful above all things? He says that it's exceedingly wicked. It's incurably sick, and who can know it? And it says, I know it, for I, the Lord, search the hearts. And modern man, in his pursuit of intellectual wisdom, deceives himself. And he thinks that we're the final arbiter between truth and untruth. We've set ourselves up as gods. And Paul says that professing to be wise, they became fools. For they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of fallen man. And so we set ourselves up as the final arbiter of truth. And we don't submit in humility to the wisdom and the power of God which is manifested and the glorious Son of Man. The other reason, people, why I think modern man fails to recognize the majesty of Jesus is because the majesty of Jesus points to the purity of life. The purity and the holiness of God. Jesus manifested Himself as pure and holy before us. The sinless Savior. But man has tried his utmost to eradicate the concept of sin, hasn't he? Modern man eradicates the concept of sin from his consciousness as much as possible. Now, give him a bit of credit. Give us all a bit of credit. We, we all admit that we're sinners. Oh, yes, oh, we are sinners. Yes, we know that. And, and, and we're quite honest in saying that. But we also compare ourselves to each other. And every time we compare ourselves to each other, we find that we're less sinners than the guy next to us. Isn't that true? I find myself, when I compare myself, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. And I'm not half as bad as half of you. <laughs> but that's because I compare myself with human, with human beings. We're not meant to compare ourselves to human beings. We're meant to compare ourselves with the standard of God. And so we're trying to eradicate sin from our consciousness. And it's, we don't see sin as something that is and open rebellion towards God. We just think it's a natural condition of man and we all sin at different levels and now oh, so what? Okay. But true sin is absolute rebellion against the loving God who has given us His will and His ways. It's utter rebellion and it's treason and death. We acted against the government of this country as we act as against God. We would be locked away for life because we're treasonable and we anti his will. And so we try to eradicate the consciousness of sin from our lives. But there's a huge danger in that, people. There's a huge danger. Because in trying to eradicate the thought and the consciousness of sin, 
we eradicate the thought and the concept of the author of sin. And this is where people, the modern man, scorns at us now when we mention the devil. There is an author of sin, which the Bible talks of and which Jesus took very seriously and which the church still takes very seriously. And it's the devil. Modern man caricatures him and, and at this stage bursts into laughter when you say to him, but we believe in God and we believe in the devil. And they caricature the devil. And I remember as a youngster, there was comic books. And, and I'm only getting back a few years now when I was a youngster. <laughs> My son said I'm nearly 60 the other day. I'll catch him. <laughs> there was a, a comic book called Hot Stuff. Do any of you remember it? was a little red devil. I caricature this lovely little red devil. And he was a fun-loving rascal. Lovely boy, man. Did a few things that were naughty, and only naughty. But at the end of the day, this little devil always did the right thing because he had some goodness in his heart. And that's the exact lie and opposite of what the devil really is like. For Jesus said this of him. He called him a thief, and he said, the thief comes only to rob, to kill, and to destroy. That's the truth of the devil. He said, sin is of the devil, for he is the father of sin, and he sinned from the beginning. Another description that Jesus gives of the devil when he says uh, in, in, um, in John 8, he says he was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own being, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And that's the real picture that the Scripture's point of Jesus, not a happy little fun-loving caricature doing a few naughty things, and prodding you with a pole, but an evil, malevolent, diabolical spirit that is let loose into this world and is opposed to God and God's people at every stage of the way. And modern man needs to understand that there's a veil over his mind and over his eyes that prevents him from seeing this malevolent spirit that is keeping him in bondage and captive and keeping a veil over his eyes so that he cannot see the truth of the majesty of Jesus Christ. And there is truly a veil over his eyes. And Paul says this in writing to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, I think it's up on the screen, I don't know. But he says this, <laughs> He says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And that perishing means those who are dying to the truth and who will ultimately die physically and spiritually to God. But he said, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case? The God of this world, referring to the devil, has blinded those who do not believe. Lest the light of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And that's the truth. Have you ever wondered why modern man or ancient man has not been able to grasp the majesty of Jesus Christ? It is because there's a malevolent spirit in this world that has kept him away from it. And he has put a veil over the mind of man. And I really, as I'm saying this, and if this message goes out to, into this country, please, I'm asking you, don't. Don't remain in darkness against the Lord. Don't see him as the devil has tried to portray him as the ultimate killjoy. Because Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And it's the devil who comes to rob and steal and kill. 
and who puts a veil and prevents the truth from coming into your heart. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, a servant of the Lord must in humility, humility correct those who are in opposition. And I trust I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in humility today, guys, because in all seriousness, it's a very serious business, this turning our backs on the Lord Jesus and succumbing to the wiles of the evil one who disguises himself as an angel of light and pretends he's not there. And all the time, just putting a veil over the mind of man that man cannot seek the truth. Paul says this, we correct those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so there's a real, real malevolent diabolical spirit out there. The Bible says the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. And he keeps us from searching for the Lord. But the Lord has not left us, guys, in a position where we just going to be ridden roughshod over by the devil. God has made a way out for us. For the scripture says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, when these old Jewish guys, if they had turned to the Lord, the veil would be removed. And the light of the knowledge of God would shine into them. And so he says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. And man's responsibility is to believe in the Lord Jesus. Man, modern man says, unless I can taste and touch and see and feel things, I won't accept it. I won't believe it. And God says, I tell you what, believe it, and then you can taste and touch and feel it all. But I just say to you this morning, turn to the Lord. We have a responsibility. And the way out, Paul says, is simply this. If you would confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And so I'd say to you, the possible reason why you can't believe in Jesus Christ if you've never yet committed to him is because a veil is over your mind. And that malevolent spirit of the world is keeping you from seeing God. But if you turn to Jesus, your eyes will be opened. You will see the majesty of the Son of Man. Glory. Bless the Lord. I could go on. I've got more. Shall I? <laughs> because I did say that I was going to say two things today. One on the majesty of the Son of Man and the Son of Man as Lord of the Sabbath. Is it time? Is it time? Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. I get 28. Just a quick one. When true religion, true relationship to the Lord, departs from the heart, then we bring in externals, and we bring in rituals and rites, and we magnify natural things above the spiritual. And that's exactly what these guys did. They magnified the day, the Sabbath, above the creator of the Sabbath. And those were the two things that, that antagonized the leadership of Israel at that time, was that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. 
And according to them, he broke the Sabbath, the way he conducted himself. But Jesus made it very plain throughout that time that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. He put a premium on man and not on the Sabbath. And, and he, he spoke to these Pharisees and he said to them, any of you have got a sheep or a donkey and it falls into a pit, surely you'll go and help it out on the Sabbath. That's working. He says, you leaders in the synagogue, you, you, you defile or you break the Sabbath by doing the sacrifices you work in. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus made it very plain that the needs of man superseded that of the value of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the people, not the people for the Sabbath. And in Genesis 1, and, and I'll just go quickly now through this one. In Genesis 1, the Bible tells us that God instituted the Sabbath after He had completed having made the creation. It said, uh, it made the creation, and then it says, and then God rested on the seventh day. And, and Reuben once put that very clearly. It's not as though God sat back exhausted and laying on the bed saying, gee, I've had enough now. Because the King of Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. Jesus said, my father is working until now, and I also must week work. And the Bible says God sustains all things. He keeps things going by the word of his power. So it's not a case that the Lord laid there, Father laid there exhausted it and, uh, at the end of his creation. It simply means that he, he had completed that creation. And now he stood back and surveyed it and said, boy, is this good. Isn't it good? And his creation is good. And so it's a completion. And the interesting thing is that God made man before the Sabbath. God puts a higher premium on man than the Sabbath because the seventh day rested, but he made man on the sixth day. And in, in the Psalms, the Bible tells us this is how God considers man. And the psalmist says, Lord, when I consider the works of your hands, the sun and the moon and the stars, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him for a little while lower than the angels but you've ultimately crowned him with glory and with honor. You've made him to rule over all things, over all the birds, the fish, and everything. You've given him dominion over all things. And the Father came, sent the Son, not to redeem the Sabbath, but to redeem man. For in the fullness of time, God sent for the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to save those who are under the law, to redeem them from the captivity. And so God puts a premium on man and not on the Sabbath. But just like everything else, the Pharisees misunderstood it and they made the day more important than the person. And as I said, when true relationship with God goes out the window, we bring in all kinds of do's and don'ts. And we start putting fetters and once boy, we bind each other with a bunch of rules and that. It's nonsense. Now it's good to rest. It's good to rest. And the reason why God did was, gave them rest, was that at, after six days labor, on the seventh day, He simply said, come and commemorate. Come and commemorate me, the Creator, and my completed creation. That's what you must do. Come and commemorate it. Look into it, delve into it, and enjoy it. Because it's, it's not good for man physically, spiritually, or emotionally to work seven days a week. It's just a natural fact. If you keep on doing that for too long, you start burning out. Isn't that true? 
And, and I know this from a, a, a small experience in the military uh, in South Africa, of course. May I have some water? We used to get called up when you came out of, the, out of school. And you'd go into service for a year. And then after that, uh, you, you do a year's training. Then after that, every year you do either three weeks or a three-month camp. And it got to, in my stage, in the, I went to, to the army in the early 60s. So you see how young I am. And I had to do these three-month camps right into the 70s. And I was in infantry, of course. And we were at war with, the, with SWAPO, the Southwest African People's Organization. And so our regiments were sent up, and for three months you were stuck out in the bushes, infantry. And what would happen is you'd just, they'd just stick you out there, and you'd patrol. You'd go out for three days with your ammo and your backsack, and then you'd come back for a day. But you did this for three months constantly until you became like zombies. You didn't know whether Sunday was Monday or Monday was Thursday. You just, you just functioned as automatons. And that's what happens in the modern world or in any world, any world situation. If there's no rest, you become zombies. And so God instituted the Sabbath so that you would just rest. Pharisees took it out of context and said, the Sabbath is more important than just contemplating the creator of the Sabbath. They did that with circumcision too. You know that? They did many things that were incorrect. They, they actually said that circumcision allows your entrance into the kingdom of God. And Paul argues like mad in the book of Romans, and he says, no, circumcision is just a sign, man. It's just a sign of the righteousness which Abraham had because he believed in God. Okay. Okay, I won't be much longer now. <laughs> anyway, you can... But anyway, I just want to say, by the time of the Christian era, the sixth day, they'd put it aside and they began to worship the Lord on the seventh day. So now who was right? And the seventh day was the day of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they saw the true value of the resurrected Savior. They saw in Him the Sabbath, the true Sabbath. Because as God had finished His creation and rested, so Jesus Christ had come and finished redemption completely. It is finished, He said. And the Christian simply believes in that now. And we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And He truly is our Sabbath today. And Paul, when he writes to the Colossians, just to... Just to to tell him, listen, this is, you don't have to get involved with all kinds of days and that. He talks of, of the completion that took place when Jesus was crucified. And I'll quickly do this. Uh, he said, having forgiven us our trespasses and put him on the cross, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And the, image, the imagery there that Paul talks of is that in the Roman prison, um, when you were convicted, you were put into a prison and, and on the door of your prison cell, they would write up uh, the crime and the sentences and you'd serve your term fully. But when that was completed, someone would come and stamp across there or write across there, you've paid in full and you could walk out of there never having to be tried or convicted or sentenced again. And that's exactly what Paul says what happened to Jesus. When God put him on the cross, he wrote across there, it is finished, paid in full. And because of that, he says, let no one cheat you. So let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of God. 
And that's the truth, people. The shadows have gone. The substance has come. We worship Jesus who has completed redemption for us. And for us today, the Sabbath is a commemoration of a Savior and a completed salvation. May the Lord bless us. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, bless you. Thank you, Lord, that we see you as the Sabbath. We have our rest in you. Love you, Lord. Thank you very much. Appreciate it all. And I ask that this morning you would bless those. And if I've gone on too long, Lord, shorten the video. Thank you. Amen.